you know, I remember being very aware that it was serious. And anytime you have something that's going on with your respiratory system, you really quickly lose your ego. I mean, there's not much bartering and you can't really tough your way through that. You know, you take away somebody's oxygen and it's just a matter of minutes and you're begging for something, anything to save you. You know, you become desperate. I guess the key is to not waste that suffering. When it comes, see it as a gift, see it as an opportunity to open our eyes and to be able to really value a normal day, you know, just realizing how incredible that is. And the tragedy is that we don't recognize it until after the fact, but you have the ability as a human being to positively or negatively affect the people around you based off of the way that you choose to interact, you know, and our purpose for being here is to serve each other, to try to make the life of another individual easier. There is no idealistic future, you know, where it's just going to all be right and we're just going to be happy. We're not a victim of it. It doesn't just happen to us. It's happening all the time and it's our ability to see it and recognize it. Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. My guest today is Tommy Rivers Pusey, or as he is known to his friends, to his family, and his many fans across the world, Tommy Rivs. Tommy is a poet of endurance. He's a philosopher of the human spirit, as well as a highly credentialed elite marathoner and ultra runner with many victories and accolades to his name. He's also a man universally beloved for his kindness and for his generosity of spirit. Tommy is also an anthropologist, a linguist, a husband, a father of three girls, a doctorate of physical therapy, and a massage therapist who has worked on some of the best endurance athletes in the world. As some of you may know, in the summer of 2020, Tommy fell gravely ill with an extremely rare and advanced form of lung cancer that very nearly killed him and most likely would have killed almost anybody else. But Rivs isn't just anyone, Rivs is Rivs. He did survive and I'm delighted to say he's here today to share his perspective, to share his wisdom, his experience. And it's quite a moving experience and it's coming right up. But first, before we get into that, a few words from the sponsors that make this show possible. Hey everybody, like me, Inside Tracker wants to help you start the new year right. So they're thrilled to help support the Living Proof Challenge, the no-cost science-based habit-building program designed by my well-being wizard brother, Simon Hill, to specifically up-level the most important biomarkers that drive health span, that drive disease prevention, physical fitness, and mental well-being, courtesy of a doable evidence-based 12-week program elaborated upon in length in my conversation with Simon that dropped January 1. That's RRP 804. If you listen to that episode, then you know the program entails comprehensive blood testing at both the commencement and conclusion of the challenge. And nobody handles blood testing better than Inside Tracker, who are graciously encouraging everyone to join the no cost challenge by offering a 25% off discount on inside tracker tests. To unlock the discount and learn more about this challenge, visit the proof 
com slash living proof. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible. They're not third-party tested or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentous's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentous for yourself by going to livemomentous.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own N.A. beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. Okay, Tommy Rivers Pusey. So, yeah, man, what can I possibly tell you about this one, this conversation to come? Well, I can tell you that 
it's nothing if not soulful. It's heavy. It's at times emotional. But ultimately, it is this beautiful celebration of the human spirit in all its boundlessness. It's a reminder that life itself is an absolute miracle and a powerful testament that things like gratitude, like positivity, service, community, and love, mostly love, are what are most important. Rives is an exemplary human. He is a quiet and introspective mentor to many. He's an example to many, many more. Personally, he's a human I aspire to emulate who comports himself with just this admirable degree of dignity, of grace, of humility, and this outpouring of generosity, this generosity of spirit. And it's just an honor to help share his story with all of you today, a story I think will prove impactful. Quick note before we get into it, this conversation was actually recorded a couple months ago on October 13th. And thus prior to Tommy's most recent and perhaps most courageous and astonishing endurance feat to date, a mere year from having to relearn how to even walk, Tommy just completed the New York City Marathon. It took him over nine agonizing hours, which is seven hours longer than his 218 marathon PR. But that nine hours was globally celebrated the world over. It introduced this humble and extraordinary man to many new people across the world and included this wonderful must-read profile in the New York Times that I will link up in the show notes that you got to check out. Okay, let us tarry on no longer. This is me having a conversation with Tommy Ribs. We're so delighted you're here. Everybody here is so happy to see you. And uh, oh, thanks, man. I'm excited to talk to you, man. I mean, I guess the first thing is, is like, how are you, like, how do you feel today? Like, how are you doing? I'm sure you get that question constantly. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's good. Um, gosh, I'm I'm stoked to be here. Um, mm. I mean, just, um, yeah, just stoked that I'm just still around, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, really, yeah. Like, it, it's a good question because it it's a good reminder. Um, to me, you know, just to, just to recenter myself and, um, and help me realize that, you know, that it's like, this is, um, couldn't be better than this, you know, there's no way that it could be any better. I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I, I think about that a lot and, uh, it's, um, it's as good as I could possibly ever hope, um, that life would be, you know, and, uh, and just being able to see that right now and recognize it. Um, yeah, that's, that's, I guess that's just kind of where I'm at, you know, just. You, you, you seem like somebody who's always had a firm grip on, on gratitude. You know, when I think about you, I think about grace and humility and somebody who's always more concerned with how other people are doing than yourself. Um, but to be able to kind of, um, hold on to that or, capture that sense of gratitude with everything that you've endured and continue to endure. I mean, that's really remarkable. Like, how do you, how do you account for that? Is it your natural disposition? Is it a practice? You must have your dark moments with all of this, of course. Um, the last year and a half or so, yeah. getting sick and everything. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely been some 
some hard times, you yeah. know, um, to say the least. A but few. Yeah. You know, I see it, I guess, as a, it goes back to just these basic, um, I guess these basic ideas that we learn in endurance athletics, you know, that you focus on what you can control, that you have a certain amount of energy, you know, mm-hmm. emotional energy, physical energy, mental energy, spiritual energy. It all comes from the same well, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, you can only control a certain amount of that. And I guess focusing and allocating those resources towards something that I actually have the ability to affect, you know, yeah. and, you know, you can affect your work ethic and you can affect your attitude. You know, those are kind of the only things you can control. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And, and so I guess there's a sense of, I, I I think about how often you, you waste energy by, um, by wishing things were, you know, a certain way when they, when they aren't. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess gratitude just comes as a natural, I guess a natural response to just recognizing that you do have control over certain things, you know? Yeah. And um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a I know question, that, I that uh, at some point, I don't know whether you wrote it or, or your wife, Steph wrote it, but she conveyed to you this idea when you were kind of in the, in the thick of, you know, going through what you've endured, this idea of, of, applying what you learned through your lifestyle and your training to navigating like this next chapter, like this is what endurance sports is. It's about endurance for life, right? Like you just kind of mentioned that, the idea that, you know, you're out there testing yourself, putting yourself in difficult situations, trying to, you know, figure out where the edge of that envelope is. And this is just a more macro version of that, like as a means of kind of reframing your relationship with the illness to help kind of give you or like buttress your kind of emotional approach to how you deal with it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I I, I feel like, um, yeah, like everything that, I mean, I think that the reason that we're drawn to endurance athletics is is because it serves as a almost as a, a skill building experience so that we can then um, take what we learn the skills and the strengths and then apply it to actual real life you right. know and and we're constantly reminding ourselves you know day after day after day that um, that we're in charge you know that we're not just this miserable creature that's just gonna stay in mm-hmm. bed and just um, just constantly seek comfort, you know, that we can rise up above um, and, you know, kind of remind ourselves that like we're, we're capable of <laughs> getting out of bed when the alarm goes off, you know, before the sun comes up and putting in the work day after day after day. And, yeah. um, and then when, you know, you're faced with challenges in personal life or daily life, it just becomes second nature, you know? Those, those habits that you create, those skills that you develop and those strengths. Gosh, and you know, <laughs> I'd like to say that, you know, I was prepared for all of this and um, that there was some greater, deeper meaning behind all of it, you know, and, but man, when you're in it and I, I'm still in it, um, you're just trying to <laughs> 
just trying to keep your head above water. How you could know? you possibly be prepared for it? I mean, you know, it's it's the unimaginable thing. It's the thing that you could have never predicted. And I think as far as, you know, endurance sports preparing you for for other life challenges, certainly that's true. But when it's just you in the road or you in the trail, there's there's a there's there's kind of a limited number of variables, right? right? Yeah. And you do have control over how you comport yourself. You're focused on the breath. You're trying to get from A to B, and there is there is an experiential aspect to that. But there's also a result oriented aspect, like I'm trying to get to this destination or I'm working towards a certain goal. And life's just messy, you know, compared to that, right? Yeah. <laughs> there's other people involved, there's personalities, there's expectations. Um, it's infinitely more complicated. Right. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, to be, you know, to be completely candid with all of it, it's all been just a blur, you know, honestly, yeah. all of it. And, and, uh, and Steph, um, my wife, Steph, she's done, she's helped me out in a way that, um, well, she's helped me out in so many ways. Um, and part of it is, is that she's, she's been the one that shouldered all of the, the knowledge about all of this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's been there with me from the very beginning, you know, as, as often as, as she was allowed to be there. And, um, I think about she balanced these two, these two simultaneous truths that um, that might seem as though they're contradictory. And and the one truth was she held on to all of the, you know, the diagnostic, um, you know, prognosis type scientific medical information. Um, she understood, you know, what the research said, what the data said, what the likelihood of, you know, outcome and survival and all of that was. Um, at the same time, she held <laughs> what would seem like an opposing truth, which was that this was, it was possible to survive this. And um, and she was able to communicate both of those to me in a way that, um, she carried the weight of all of it, mm-hmm. um, but was able to communicate to me, yes, this is serious, but um, but you're going to get through it. You know, there's a, there's a process. There's um, there are some things that you're going to have to do that we're going to have to do to be able to get to the other side of this. Um, but it's just simply a matter of checking these boxes and doing it, yeah. and then when you're done. You know, you'll you'll be over this. You'll survive this, and you'll be you'll be whole. You'll be well again. And um, I think that because of that, there, there's never been a time throughout this that I didn't actually believe that I would survive. You mm. know. Um, so she she was somewhat circumspect with you in terms of like the the the, the dire details of what yeah. you were facing. Yeah, she held all that. Yeah. I mean, she she didn't she didn't actually share much of that with me, uh-huh. and and I actually. I've done my best to try to to not find out <laughs> right. those types of, um, I guess, the statistics and things like that. Um, somebody that was just a passive observer of of um, you know the things that she wrote and the things that were um, made public knows more about <laughs> the details of all of this than 
than I think I even do. And mm. and I, a lot of what I've learned is just stuff that I've stumbled upon accidentally. And you know, I'll start to read it. I'll start to see it. <laughs> And I'll think, oh, because you were unconscious through the you know great majority of, of yeah. a lot of this. Yeah. So it was Steph and Jacob who made this decision to be very transparent about yeah. everything that was going on. And sure. because so many people love you, everybody was hanging on the edge of their seat, wanting to know the details, and you know, eager to learn how you were doing on a daily basis. And and you know, they were like every single day. Like I would log in and see how you were doing, and they would have reports and prognoses and all the like. Meanwhile, yeah. you're, you know, you're the one who's enduring it, but you're not conscious to yeah. <laughs> really have to deal with the, you know, the emotional, uh, you know, pressure of what that entails. Sure. Yeah. I uh yeah, I haven't read any of it. Yeah. I really haven't. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I I've seen some of it and I've read enough to realize I don't I don't want to read this yet. Yeah. And you know, and Steph is um the whole time she's She's asked, well, you know, I'll just have questions. I'm like, how do I get the scar? How do I get the mm-hmm. scar, the scar, the scar, the scar? You know, where'd these scars come from? And um, she's like, well, do you want me to tell you? And I'm like, actually, no, I'd, I'd rather not know right now. And, um, and your, your daughter, you have three daughters, yeah, right? Three girls. Yeah. I mean, they're old enough to go online and read this stuff, right? I mean, what is their yeah. awareness around? Um, I mean, the oldest one, I guess she could be. She's way more into like, bugs and frogs and stuff like that than, uh-huh. than, than getting online and reading about stuff. Keep but, it that way. Yeah, exactly. You know, she's, I, I, uh, I don't think that, I, I think that if, um, well, I, one thing that I think that hopefully we've done right with all this is, is try to shield them from just the spectacle of it, you mm. know, and, um, not let it become something that their identity is reduced to, you know, at school or with yeah. um, you know, Flagstaff's a small town. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, trying to, you know, help them understand like the the seriousness of the situation, but not have it become a, it's just not a spectacle, you know? And um, a lot of it is still to be determined, you know? This is a, I've got to be, um, you know, grateful for each each day that I have to be here. But at the same time, um, you know, recognizing that this is still this is still an ongoing thing. Yeah. You know? So you're you're in remission right now, but yeah. there's this looming threat that yeah. it could come back at any time. Right. Yeah. But if you get through a certain period of time, like a year or so, then that risk yeah. reduces significantly. Yeah, for sure. It definitely reduces it. It's it's a this particular type typically comes back, you know, and and until there's been um until there's been a, a bone marrow transplant. And um it's kind of this tricky holding pattern where um you're not given permission to land but you're running out of fuel, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh um, So are you waiting on that right now? Or are you well, waiting on a bone? So it's tricky. It's it's um there, there are so few cases of, of this particular type of cancer that there's not a ton known about it. But, um, but typically, it comes back until, uh, unless or in, um, unless there's been a bone marrow transplant, and, mm-hmm. and you have to be in remission in order to have a bone marrow transplant. And when um, when I first went into remission, I think it was last January, or this January, um, I weighed about ninety five pounds, yeah. and um, my lungs were so scarred up. I think it was about 20% lung function. And um, 
And one of my oncologists, she said, um, you know, she sat down and had a conversation with Steph and I and said, you know, we're not going to, uh, we can't treat you anymore. You know, we're not going to continue. Um, we can't do any more chemo and we also can't, um, we can't give you a bone marrow transplant because you won't, <laughs> you won't survive it. You know, you have to mm -hmm. be able to, um, you have to have certain, I guess, physical markers to be able to even be a candidate for it just because they're, they're not going to give you something that they know is just a death sentence. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, the chemo necessary to, to destroy all of your bone marrow so that then you can, um, receive, um, the transplant that's so, you know, so toxic that that in and of itself, a lot of times, you know, can be fatal. And, right. um, and so they said, all right, this is something that we can't do right now because this will, this will for sure 100% kill you. Um, and so what we got to do is <laughs> basically you don't have cancer right now. You're in remission right now. Um, that was the greatest risk at the time. You know, um, a lot of this is just, just uh, a process of looking at what is the greatest possible risk and um, trying to eliminate that, you know, one, one, one step at a time. And so the cancer was no longer the risk and, and the greatest risk was, um, you know, lack of lung function and technically starvation. Um, yeah. My body was in a state of, it's called um, cancer cachexia where <clears throat> it's muscle wasting and your, your body's unable to absorb enough nutrients to be able to put on weight, mm -hmm. um, even though it's, you know, being pumped through your stomach. And so, you know, you're in this state that's completely, basically starved, you know, you're yeah. starving to death. Your, your body's just cannibalizing itself. Exactly, yeah. And so you're, um, you know, that was the greatest risk at the time. And, um, you know, so we, they said, okay, let's, let's just wait and see. And, you know, if and when this comes back, we'll set up a plan, we'll go through, um, you know, set up a treatment plan that would consist of more rounds of chemo and mm -hmm. um, to get me back into remission again. And then, you know, to be able to destroy my bone marrow and then, you know, set me up to be able to have a transplant. And then, um, and at that time, hopefully my lungs were stronger and, mm -hmm. and my, you know, weight was up to where I'd be able to actually survive it. So, and so right now <laughs> the goal I would, I would imagine is to just try to be as healthy as you can yeah. so that you'll be able, if, if and when that occurs, you can withstand what gets thrown at yeah, you. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And are your lungs currently at 20% still? I don't know what Is that improving at, yeah. at all? It, yeah, that, it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely improved. It it improves slowly though, you know, it, lungs don't regenerate like, mm -hmm. like a liver would, you know? And and so there's there's a lot of scar tissue, you know, at, a, at like a, at a really cellular level, at the, at the level where the gas exchange takes place. And so, it's difficult to get enough oxygen in and then it's difficult to get enough CO2 back out. Yeah. And, and I can feel it, you know, I, I can sense um, kind of where I'm at just by, um, you know, you become really in tune with it. And mm -hmm. it's like when you're, um, when you're running at elevation or you're, you're swimming and, and doing, you know, hypoxic breathing, you can, you can feel, you know, you're like, yeah. okay, I got five more seconds before the lights go out. Sort of but thing, coming you know? down from flag to here to sea level, can you feel good. the difference? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, no, it feels great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, part, yeah. Of, part of what I was so stoked about to come here was like, oh, I'll be able to actually breathe, breathe for a, a couple of better. days, you know? Yeah, yeah. So but you're breathing LA air, so it, it's pretty clear out today, yeah. but. <laughs> no, it's good, yeah, uh -huh. oxygen's, oxygen's a great thing, you know? Yeah, so 
<clears throat> Certainly a lot of people listening or watching are familiar with the story, but there's gonna be you know, a significant percentage of people who, who perhaps you're new to them. So can we walk through kind of what happened? Yeah, sure, yeah, as, I mean, as well as I can remember. As you yeah. Could, yeah, well, we'll go, we'll, we'll walk it up to the, until, you, <laughs> until you're in this induced coma, but. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, essentially, as I understand it, you were coming off an injury that you had sustained trying to qualify for Olympic trials where yeah. you put your foot in a pothole, yeah. right? Was that at yeah. Boston? Um, Which marathon was that? Let me think, when was that? Houston. Houston, yeah. that's right, Houston, yeah. right? And and you were like on pace to run 216 at the time or something so, like yeah. that? Yeah, we were right around um, 216 pace. Tore your meniscus, yeah. you're out, you're injured. And as you start to kind of, um, you know, repair yourself and wrap your head around, perhaps beginning to train again, you go out to the Grand Canyon. So why don't we just pick it up there? Yeah, um, let's see, that was probably in, okay, Houston was in January. And yeah, it was a torn Summer meniscus. Summer of 2020. Yeah. Well, the, the the marathon was some months prior to that, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 January of 2020. And then, so I was out for a few months. I, I tore my meniscus and I also tore my the short head of my biceps femoris so on my hamstring. And that I think was what, what really um, mm. was holding me back. And so that takes a long time, you know, to, to heal from that stuff. And um, I was in a funk. I mean, it was a hard, it was a really hard time. And uh, it's just as the pandemic was starting. And um, so this kind of collective sense of <laughs> um, discontent, you know, it was, it was a strange time. And yeah, and I was just trying to, trying to put my head back together. I mean, that, that, that was something that I'd been working for really the greater part of my entire, you know, my adult life. And um, in my head, it was like, okay, this is probably the last chance I have um, to get there. Uh, I mean, you know, not that you can't do it when you're mm -hmm. 40, but in my head, right. I was, my you're window was- 36 at the time. 36, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I was running out of time, it seemed. And, um, and you know, my thought was like, okay, I'll, I'll do this, running the Olympic trials. That'll be just kind of a, a lifelong goal that I've had. And then after that, I can, I can now get serious about running in the mountains, you know, doing trails and ultras and stuff like that. And uh, so I was down in the canyon. I'd been there a couple of times, you know, and, and it really is just a place to, that place is, that place is special to me. And yeah. um, it was a, it's always just been a chance to go down and just kind of reconnect with myself and with, um, just that space and and it, it's always been a place that rather than going there to hurt, it's been a place that I go to not hurt, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And um, so I wanted to see, uh, kind of just test my durability, you know, see how I was doing. And so I went down there with a friend, um, Derek Lytle, um, and he's a he's a an accomplished. Um, ultra runner, um, videographer, photographer. Uh, and he's, he's tough. I mean, he, um, I think a few years before that he was doing, he was attempting the, the FKT fastest known time on the Arizona trail, you know, from Utah down to, uh -huh. um, self-supported, you know, so he's carrying all of his stuff and, um, he got in a bad situation, got caught in rain, you know, like three days in a row. And, um, so I drove out and met him and, <laughs> 
brought him a, a subway sub and a coke you know and sat there and yeah. and he moped for a little bit and then you know i drove him in and, and helped him dnf basically you know? <laughs> and so um and you know i'd spent some time doing some work with him before and um he, he's a a good dude somebody that you want to have um have your back when you're in a bad situation you know so um our plan was just to run across the canyon and back and it was it was in june which is really hot you know mm -hmm. down in the canyon and um, so we were going to go down Bright Angel Trail across and then up North Kaibab and then Rim back. to rim. Yeah, yeah. The and, inverted mountain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's so hot that time of year. The only way to really do it is is through the middle of the night. So we left at sunset and um, started our way down. And and I, I had a, I kind of had a lingering headache for a couple of days and prior to that, you know, and I'd, I'd been in the canyon, oh, maybe three days before that. And mm -hmm. I figured I just wasn't hydrated well enough and that, um, you know, I didn't feel great about it, but I, I thought, well, this is fine. I've got a long time. I can, I can focus on hydration and nutrition on the way down and, and it'll, it'll be all right. Well, you left out the part about being in the canyon. I don't know if it was the day before or yeah. a couple of days before yeah. where you were down in there and you <laughs> encountered a woman at the base yeah. who had, who was having problems and you gave her all your food and yeah. your hydration. Right? Well, <laughs> and then yeah. you had to get out of there without any of that, <laughs> right. I, not knowing that you're harboring this illness the yeah. whole time. Yeah, that was a weird thing is that I think that was a, I think it was a Wednesday actually that I was down there by myself and and I met a, a lady that was with some friends and she, um, gosh, she was in a bad, bad situation. And um, it's incredible, you know, there, because the pandemic was going on, there weren't, there weren't rangers down there. There mm -hmm. weren't people down there. And I, there's this sense of, um, there's this false sense of security that we have, I, I feel, you know, in, in the US in a lot of situations that, that somebody will always bail you out. You know, that if something goes wrong, well, you've got insurance, somebody will always make it right, you know? And man, in some of these places, um, man, dead is dead, you know? And there's mm -hmm. nobody nobody that's gonna come and bail you out. There's not a mule train that's gonna pick you up and take you back. and. Um, you know, they were out of water and and arguing with me about the GPS that, you know, Phantom Ranch was supposed to be a half mile away according to the GPS. And, you know, I had just been there and I was on my way back and, you know, I had to tell her it's like, well, it's actually like three miles. And, mm. you know, they argued with me like, well, but it says on the GPS that it's a quarter mile. I'm like, that's fine if it <laughs> says that, but I, I Look, promise, I've been here a million times. Yeah, I promise yeah. you it's three miles and, um, and there's no water between here and there. And it was, Oh gosh. I mean, down there at the bottom, it gets like, it's not an exaggeration to, you know, 120 or 130 degrees in the summer. Oh, and just that. cause it, it reflects off the mm -hmm. rock walls and it's just, it's just so hot. And, um, and she was shaky and her face was purple and, um, and I'm talking to her and trying to explain how to get there. And, and she, she passed out, like she lost consciousness and I'm trying to hold her there, trying to figure out where I can set her on these rocks so that I can do CPR if I need to, but the rocks are so jagged that it's like, okay, if I, if I compress on her chest, I'm for sure gonna break her back because there's no, mm -hmm. everything is just so rugged right there. Um, anyway, her friends come around the corner and it takes a lot of persuading, you know, for them to just finally believe me that, <laughs> that it's actually, you know, a few more miles down the trail. And um, anyway, I got out of there and they were, I don't know, actually, I don't know what ended up happening to them, but, um, so, you know, I got pretty dehydrated on my way back out and um, 
and figured that's what it was, you know? So a couple of days later, I'm in there and have this headache and um, I'm thinking that's the same, you know, that, that it's related to that, um, just overdoing it a few days before. Mm-hmm. So we get down to the bottom of the canyon, we're at Phantom Ranch and we fill up and um, eating and drinking and we continue on and we get to, oh, there's a place called Cottonwood. It's the, the next place to fill up the water bottles and we keep going from there. And then I, you know, I finally tell Derek, I was like, you know, something doesn't feel right. I can't, I can't cool down. I could tell my heart rate was, um, was way too high, mm-hmm. you know, for where we were. Uh, I was like, I don't know if I can, if I can do this. I don't know if this is a good idea to do this. And, you know, he was really cool about it. He's like, yeah, that's, that's smart. And, and he, you know, he's well enough, um, has enough experience in that kind of thing to know that if you don't have a great feeling about something, you should probably yeah. listen to it in a situation like that. And, um, but then you don't want to let your friend down, you know? And um, so we flipped around and went back to Phantom Ranch and was laying there and um, just staring up at the stars. And it was midnight, or right around, you know, between between midnight and one in the morning. And, um, and I couldn't get my heart rate down and I couldn't mm-hmm. get my breathing under control and I couldn't, I couldn't cool my body down. And, and then I finally cooled down, but then I couldn't warm back up. And that's never a good sign. You know, if you can't um, regulate your body's temperature, that's, that's never good. And I remember thinking that was it. Like that was, that was where (laughs) I was going to die. I was like, I'm going to die on a, on a picnic table in Phantom Ranch. And um, because I didn't (laughs) hydrate properly. And I remember thinking that was just- You were chalking it all up to hydration. I thought that's what it was, yeah. Just because everything, you know, you assess different things. It's like, okay, have I eaten enough? Have I drinking enough? Um, Are my electrolytes okay? And if it's not water or food or electrolytes or oxygen, you know, it's like, well, what what could it possibly be? And it's not that complicated typically, you know? And you troubleshoot and try to figure out, okay, where am I deficient? And um, just didn't make any sense. And- so reluctantly, you know, we just start trudging our way back out. And it took, it usually takes about two hours to get back out. And it took uh, like 12, I think. And wow. and it was bad. I mean, by the time I got up to the top, um, my breathing was so shallow. You know, I was really just wheezing and uh, got back to his truck and I, I just blacked out. Like as soon as we got back to the truck and, um, you know, he drove back to Flag and, and he was cool through all of it. You know, it was just like, oh, this this happens. He just overdid it. And um, I knew I'd probably get shit for it, you know, later that it was like, <laughs> it did couldn't, you feel couldn't it? Hack did, it? Were you having <clears throat> respiratory like distress though? Were you like coughing yeah. up blood and stuff like that? A little or, bit, yeah. yeah. But 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 that also is not that uncommon. You know, if you start to cough a lot, it's like, okay, am I, is that blood coming from my lungs or is that blood coming from, you know, just, mm-hmm. just my throat? You know, if you cough too much, that just, that can just happen sometimes. And, um, so there was a little bit of that. And then in the days after that, I got home and I, I just assumed I had COVID. I mean, all my, yeah. all my symptoms just, just seemed like, you know, it was, it was still early on, not a lot was known. And, and, um, you know, this dry, non-productive cough, um, and, you know, chills and night sweats and, 
Of um, course it's COVID. Right. It I mean, was, we're it in the was, middle of a pandemic. Exactly, yeah. You're having this respiratory thing. For like, sure. How could it not be COVID? Yeah, yeah and that's what and I it's, thought. And it was irregular, like it was unlike anything that you'd kind of experienced before. Right. So yeah. everybody would have assumed that. Yeah, it was a different kind of cough, you know? And it really, I mean, it was so bad that you know, I cough and cough and cough and then, and you're so irritated that, that then there's a lot of blood, you know, you're coughing up a lot of blood. and. And then you aspirate that blood. And I remember in the evenings when I would fall asleep, it was more like I would lose consciousness rather than like actually falling asleep. You know, you'd cough and cough and cough until you start to see stars. And, and then, you know, you start to choke on that. And, and then you just wake up and there's blood all over mm-hmm. your pillow. And it's like, oh, dang, that, was, that wasn't good. And, you know, it's, it's a, it was a situation that was delicate too because... Um, I went in and tried to get tested a few times. Well, I went in and got tested a couple of times and, and it came back negative. And I, mm-hmm. I, I remember arguing with the lady. I was like, how, how is it negative? Like how, how you know, you did your test wrong. Cause like- Yeah, and it's, like it's, it's summer 2020. <clears throat> so there was a lot of, I mean, these tests were not great. Right. And it also was as strange as it sounds, um, it was political too. And physicians yeah. were afraid to treat, you know, certain ways because if you acknowledge something, then you were taking a political stance, right. and yeah. and it just it just became messy, you know. Yeah. And um, trying to, in my head, trying to figure out, okay, what's the best way that I can receive treatment, and also how can I not take up resources? How can I not take up a hospital bed that that there's a shortage already? You know, specifically in Flagstaff, there was yeah. There was you a were shortage. very resistant about going to the hospital. Yeah. Yep. And and I thought it was because okay if this if this is COVID well then I can just treat this at home you know like that's what you're supposed to do is self isolate mm-hmm. and, and you have I mean you remember there were it's like okay for the first five days and then the next five days and then the next five days and you know there was this graph that uh-huh. that um, you know we kind of knew how it was supposed to respond and um, you feel better and then you feel worse and then you feel better and then you're then you're good and. And strangely, this was following a really similar arc. And anyway, so I figured that if I had, you know, a nice home and I had a place where I could isolate from my family, I had food, I had water, I had air conditioning, I had everything I needed. Mm -hmm. And then there were people, um, hundreds of people uh, on the Navajo Res and the Hopi Res um, that, that don't have that, don't have don't have running water, don't have plumbing, don't have climate control in their houses, don't have a separate apartment that they can, you know, um, sequester themselves. It just, it seemed so unfair to go to the hospital and take up a bed. Um, And so I thought, and maybe there was some hubris in this, but I thought I, you know, I I studied, (laughs) I've, dabbled in the healthcare profession for, you know, quite a few years. I, I, I feel like I understand how to triage. Um, yeah, we well, have a doctorate <laughs> right. in physical therapy. Right. You're also one of the fittest people on the planet. Like you're just an absolute beast, like a specimen. If anybody's gonna have the constitution to kind of get through this, right. you would be that guy. So on some level, it makes sense. You're also not one to, you're always thinking about everyone else. So like your mind immediately goes to the Navajo nation when you're in a desperate need of, of attention yourself. But um, the smart piece of this is in retrospect, looking back, 
if it turns out you don't have COVID and then you go to the ER and you're surrounded by people with COVID right. yeah. in a very compromised situation, I mean, that could be cataclysmic. Right, and that was the thinking. It was like, okay, if, if this isn't COVID, it, it had turned into, um, again, this is self-diagnosis, but it felt like, um, bacterial pneumonia at that point. And, you know, based off of the stuff I was coughing up and um, the symptoms. And so my thought process was, well, I, I just need the medication to, to be able to get through this. Mm -hmm. And um, I need an antibiotic. I need some specific, uh, you know, medication to be able to, um, to treat it. And if this isn't COVID, and if I go to the hospital, I will 100% get COVID. And if I get COVID with bacterial pneumonia, yeah, uh, you know, the prognosis is not great for something like that. And so I, I was really stubborn, you know. And um, and luckily, Steph was more stubborn, you know. And she was able to, I guess, speak some sense into me. And eventually, well, she get, discovered you lying on the floor, passed out in a pool of blood, is what happened, yeah, right? And it's like yeah. enough is enough. You're going to the hospital. Yeah. I think the way that she did it finally was that she came home and put a, a pulse ox, like a pulse oximeter on my uh -huh. finger and showed me my um, my oxygen saturation. And it was it was bad. I think maybe 72, mm -hmm. which is not good. And um, so I was like, okay, really reluctantly, I stopped arguing with her about it. And um, in my defense, um, typically when, you're, when your CO2 is that high and your oxygen is that low, it causes you to, become really delirious and really belligerent actually. Mm, it does. And, and so looking back, um, I'd like to think that some of that stubbornness was, <laughs> was just because I was in an, <laughs> altered, an altered state yeah. of consciousness. But. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is gonna be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fair Trade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic fair trade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive. And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become 
so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, waking up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. So you get into the hospital, but then the next ordeal is trying to figure out, you know, what the heck is going on here? Yeah. Like they couldn't diagnose this for quite a long period of time. I mean, it went from maybe it is COVID, maybe it's a fungal infection, maybe it's pneumonia, yeah. maybe it's the bubonic plague, like that was considered right yeah. at some point. Yeah, and was... you're a guy who's traveled all over the world. Like you've been in all these crazy places. Right. Like it's not far-fetched yeah. that you could have contracted some kind of parasite or something yeah. along the way. Sure, yeah, that was a, we had some really lengthy, I remember having lengthy conversations with the infectious disease specialist. And, you know, he'd ask me these questions and, um, he was really adamant about it being the plague though, you know, and, and that makes sense. I mean, that, that, that happens sometimes in, in Northern Arizona, the, the rock chucks and the prairie dogs can get it in their lungs. Right, you get it from rodents. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and it has to be, it's, it's similar to how COVID is spread is that the, um, the particles from, um, from their chest or you know, respiratory particles, essentially, uh, if you, breathe them in, then you can, you can contract it. And so the questioning was like, okay, have you, <laughs> in the last month, have you had contact, <laughs> if you had contact with a prairie dog or a rock chuck? Um, I don't think so. Mm. Um, and then I remember thinking, I was like, oh no, I did chase one in the Grand Canyon. I followed it, you know, just, just looking at it um, and watched it go into its hole. And I remember looking into the hole and I remember thinking, I was like, it clicked. I was like, oh, that's it. Mm. All right. Couldn't a, a dead rodent get into the water supply where you're refilling your bottles down in the canyon? Maybe. I, I think that's pretty, it's pretty, um, well, I like to think that it's pretty clean down there, you know, uh-huh. that, that it's filtered pretty well. But, you know, I guess that was a possibility. The way that he explained it is it had to be breathed in, you know? Mm. Um, and so I remember thinking, oh, that was it. That was the rock chuck that I saw. And that was the one that did it to me. And I told him, I was like, yeah, I did. I saw one. I actually took a picture of it, you know? and. And then he asked, um, okay, well, if it wasn't that, did you potentially step on a rock chuck or a prairie dog? Um, I was like, I'm pretty sure I didn't. He said, well, did anybody that you've run with in the last month potentially step on a rock chuck or a prairie dog and you breathed in, you know, whatever was squeezed out of its lungs? I was like, I don't think so. And he said, you need to, you need to find out. And so I was like, gosh, this is like, you know, contact tracing to the next level. Um, Contact anybody that may have, may have stepped on a prairie dog. Um, in the middle of the night in the <laughs> Grand Canyon when you can't yeah, see anything. Exactly. I mean, anything's possible. Yeah, so, you know, we, we eventually ruled that out and uh, it wasn't the plague. And uh, and then I remember they started talking about a couple of other different diagnoses and, 
and lymphoma was one that they brought up and mm-hmm. I, I I really just kind of laughed at that. It was like, that's like, how, why, you know, how, how would I have lymphoma? Um, and then I just assumed it was just, I, I still thought it was COVID or something that had to be related to COVID that just maybe wasn't detectable at the time. And, um, and that the testing just hadn't gotten mm-hmm. that sensitive enough. And, um, and then I, I think they, I got to a point, things started to get really blurry at that point. Um, got to a point where they said they were going to need to put me on a ventilator because I couldn't keep my uh, oxygen level uh, high enough. And um, yeah, and I remember just talking to to Steph and um, leaving messages for the girls, you know, that I had to go to sleep for a couple of days and that, that I'd be back soon. And, um, you know, just not amused by all of it, but just really curious, just kind of like, I wonder what, I wonder what actually is going on. Mm. And it'll be interesting when I wake up to find out what actually had happened, you know? And- uh, Did the did the prospect of going on the ventilator scare you a little bit? Because I yeah. just remember that was the period of time when if you did have COVID and you're still thinking you might have COVID, yeah. you go on that ventilator, a lot of people aren't coming off that ventilator. Right. Yeah, and I, I think I, I don't think I knew enough about it to be that freaked out because in my head, in my head, I was like, I'm not going to die of COVID. Like I, mm. it's, it's, um, it's people with preexisting conditions that die of this. It's, it's people that have, or are at an advanced age and, um, and have, you know, comorbidities. And, um, you know, I remember being very aware that it was serious and, any any time you have something that's going on with your respiratory system, you you really quickly lose your ego. I mean, you there's not much bartering, mm-hmm. and you can't you can't really tough your way through that. You know, you take away somebody's oxygen, and it's just a, <laughs> a matter of minutes, and you're you're begging for somebody something anything to to save you. I mean, that's why <laughs> it's like being waterboarded. You know, and and there's a reason why. <laughs> Gosh, that, that's so effective because there's this there's this fear that that comes over you when um, everything protective within your body is telling you you're you're gonna die. Like you you've got seconds, you know, um, unless you change something, and you know you become desperate and and whatever it is, you know, whatever it is that um, that needs to be done to to be able to make you stop feeling that yeah. you're willing to, <laughs> you're willing to do it. You're willing to concede. And um, yeah. And yeah, that was kind of, it's kind of where things started to just go um, blurry for me. Cause um, <laughs> after that, it was, that was in July. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was probably November before I, like your next memory. Yeah, before right. it finally- Were you in and out of consciousness or yeah. you were, you just don't have well, that's, a recollection of that. that? I do, that's where things get really, really um, difficult to decipher. I, um, what it feels like is, I mean, I've been told now that, it, that it's um, amnesia and retrograde amnesia and you know, not having enough oxygen for so many weeks and months that there's, you know, irreparable brain damage and things like that. And um, what it felt like was that all of these files that I had um, over the last 
gosh, maybe 10 years, um, were corrupted. And, and then, and then during those months that I was, um, in a coma, I, I wasn't here, but I was still, um, I was somewhere, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and what I experienced was, um, you know, time is interesting. Time can distort, time can fold back on itself. Time can be, you know, stretched. Um, and I experienced lifetimes and during those, um, weeks and months. And then (laughs) the really tricky thing is that then when I started to have, um, the realization that I was back here, wherever here is, um, all of those experiences that I had when I was asleep, I guess, um, Steph and I call it when I was in the, in between, you know, Mm -hmm. wherever I was, um, it's as though they got planted back in where all of those corrupted files had been and just kind of mixed together. Mm. And so the, the interesting thing is that they, they didn't, they didn't get filed as though they were dreams. They got filed as though they were memories. And, um, and so everything from the last decade has been mixed with all of these other experiences. And, um, so you still have trouble sort of parsing those things and oh, making gosh. sense of All what was real and what transpired in the liminal space. Yeah, exactly. So what was that experience? What, like, where do you think you went? Like, <laughs> like paint that picture for me of being in that in between. Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> that's hard. Um, there was, um, exhaustion, I think, is is um, the overwhelming feeling that I felt initially. And it was it was that I was trying so hard to stay here. Um, I could sense that something was pulling me. Um, and it was painful. It was uncomfortable. Um, I was trying really, really hard to not leave whatever this was. Um, whether we think of it as a, like a cage, you know, um, trying to stay within that cage and um, trying to be held by my body still. And, and then I remember there was a, there was a time where I, I was just so tired, just so, so tired. And I remember thinking, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't think I can do this anymore. And and by then I, I'd lost any uh, recollection that I, that I had a life here. I, I didn't remember that I had kids. I didn't remember, um, you know, that I lived in Flagstaff, that I, um, any of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a, there was a point where <laughs> the, the weird thing is that Steph was always with me the entire time. I thought, I thought we were on this just grand <laughs> adventure, you know, that we were exploring the cosmos together. And and I got to a point where um it's going to be hard. Um I stopped uh, I made the conscious decision that I was going to be done, that I didn't want to fight whatever was pulling me away anymore, that I didn't have the strength to fight it anymore. And, um, and there was a sense of, (laughs) 
um, peace and just um, comfort in wherever it was that I was going. And, um, and I saw it and it was <laughs> inviting and um, beautiful and safe. And, um, and Steph uh, nudged me and she said, we've, you've, you've got to go back. And I said, I, I don't, I don't want to go back. Like, look at, look at this place. Um, I said, come with me, just, just come with me. Like, don't you want to be here too? And she, uh, <laughs> she grabbed my face and, and turned my head. And, um, I said, I don't, I don't want to go back. And she said, um, <laughs> she said, you don't, you don't have a choice. Um, and she pointed and I could see in the distance, um, my, my girls and, um, I'd forgotten <laughs> that they even existed. And, um, she said, you don't have a choice. You've got those three little girls that you've got to go home to. And um, I remember seeing it and, um, being so angry just because I felt like I don't know how I'm, I'm going to do this. I don't have the strength to go back. I'm so, I'm so done. You know, I'm so ready to just, just stop fighting whatever this is. And, um, I remember just closing my eyes and breathing and just, um, kind of just accepting it. It was like, okay, you know, I guess, I, I guess I don't have a choice. I guess I have to come back. And then the, um, the pull, all of that fighting that I had done to stay where I had been initially, um, it was the same amount of effort to come back mm. to that space. And I remember when I finally did come back um, and I got here, wherever that is, um, I was so angry. I was angry at my physicians. I was angry at Steph. I was angry at everybody. <laughs> I was angry at everybody that had uh -huh. prayed me back, you know, because it felt as though I couldn't even choose to die the way I wanted, you know, mm. because the pull of, um, <laughs> that pull was so strong, you know, whatever it was that, uh, that pulled me back when I had chosen to, I even chosen where I just didn't know how I could continue doing it. I just yeah. felt like I didn't have the strength to continue um, the ability to continue that amount of discomfort and that amount of effort. And, whew, and I got back and um, woke up, I guess. I, 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 it's not that simple, but, um, and I was in this shell of a body and I was like, what did you, what'd you guys do to my lungs? What'd you do to my body? What'd you do to, you know, I weighed 95 pounds and, how long, do you know how long you had been under at that point? This was coming out of the coma. Yeah. So this was like how many weeks or months? Uh, it was, gosh, I don't even know. Don't um, even know. Yeah. It was, um, Steph said that there were times that in, in August, in September, you know, that I, that I was responsive to certain things. Um, it was way later than that before I actually was able to piece together what was mm -hmm. going on before I understood that I, 
was in the ICU, that I had lymphoma, that I was undergoing chemo, all of those things. That, that was probably November before I actually realized yeah. that. Um, but, you know, I woke up with, I had pressure ulcers on my heels and on my shoulder and on my, my sacrum. My, <laughs> I've got a scar, you know, the size yeah. of my fist on my tailbone um, where, you know, just from having to be in the same position. Bed sores. Yeah, the, the, the bed sores, um, you know, they just happen if you can't be yeah. shifted. And, but this um, idea, like the mysteries <clears throat> of consciousness when you're in a comatose state, right? Is yeah. fascinating. And you yeah. have this, you know, basically near death experience that you recollect with incredible clarity. Yeah. The idea that you had awareness yeah. in that liminal space is fascinating. And coming out of that and now with some, you know, time and distance between that experience and, and where you're where you're at now, like what do you what do you make of that like spiritually? Yeah. You know, like that's a trip. Right. Yeah. Um I I talked to the Steph like initially, right as it was happening, and um <laughs> there was um at the time it was very clear and and there were more answers than questions but as i look back now there's now more questions, questions and answers with yeah, all yeah. of that and what what i did say to steph um <laughs> and i remember thinking was that um and of course this is this was my experience and i don't know how who knows how much of it is um I don't see it in any way as though like, oh, I discovered the truth. You know, I had this, I had this vision, I had this experience, and this is the experience that you have. I, I don't I don't feel that way at all. It was the experience that I had. But um I remember we continue. We don't it's not just darkness. It doesn't just end. Um but it's um and it's right here. It's all happening right here, but it's it's different. Um, I remember realizing that okay, is if if I if I become unmoored from this body, um, I can't go back, and I will still be here, right here. All of this will still be happening, but I won't have the ability to communicate with everybody who's still in that space. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking how um, how agonizing that would be to see my girls and and that they would still be right here, but I wouldn't be able to communicate to them. I wouldn't be able to let but them But you know. would have awareness of the other dimension. But also complete awareness of all of their fear and all of their questions and all of their grief and all of their heartache and and being able to see it and feel all of it, but not be able... <laughs> to reach across and yeah. say, but I'm still right here. Just so you know, I'm still right here. Um, wow. And that was, um, the fear of that was a huge uh, motivator. Um, I remember also thinking and, and feeling and seeing um, <laughs> that, um, that heaven and hell, um, <laughs> They exist, but they exist to everybody simultaneously, and and they exist in proportion to the amount of 
love that we gave and the amount of love that we were able to receive. And then <laughs> the hell part um, is the recollection and the understanding of all of the love that we didn't give and didn't receive um, when we could have. And mm-hmm. that that heaven and hell exist simultaneously um, <laughs> based off of the different relationships that we had um, while we had the opportunity to express those things. And um, that there could be a sense of, of heaven, um, such a big term, but a sense of, a sense of peace um, with the way that we conducted ourselves with a certain individual and the complete opposite with an awareness of the way that we conducted ourselves with somebody else. And, and that it is all, (laughs) that it's all connected, that it all continues. Um, And that, um, gosh, just the urgency of, of now. And, um, that what we continue to feel beyond this is um, is directly linked with the way that we interact with people. Comport ourselves. While we're here. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's so powerful. That's such a powerful lesson. It's also... Um, encouraging to me, you know, like it, it makes me feel yeah. good and safe in some regard. It gives me a sense of agency and kind of a directive about how to live, right. but it's comforting yeah. to hear that. And I suspect you being where you're at right now, which is, you know, obviously in a better place than you were, but also somewhat precarious, there's some comfort for you in, in having that awareness and understanding. Yeah, that there, <laughs> there is in some sense, but the part of what, um, part of the fear, the fear that I had as I experienced that was that um, I, I remember feeling as though um, whatever it is beyond here, beyond this, um, it's not bad, it's not scary, um, but it's not here. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's lovely, whatever it is when it happens, but I, I'm not ready yet. I don't mm-hmm. wanna go yet um, because my, <clears throat> because I, I like it here, you know, mm-hmm. and it, um, this is the after party. You know, there's no after party. This is as good as it gets. This is everything right now. Um, and whatever is beyond this, it, it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily bad, but it's, my girls aren't there. Yeah. My family's not there. My friends aren't there. My life is not there. It's here. Um, and gosh, I want to stay here as long as I can and just wring everything out of, this experience first. How does that color, you know, how you kind of navigate your life day to day now? Like, has it changed? Obviously you're more self-aware of your mortality. I suspect you're more present with each given moment and 
understanding the preciousness of, I mean, you have, you have young girls, it's like, it's the best, yeah. you know? But to be able to have that awareness and enjoy it while it's happening rather than in retrospect right. is certainly a gift. That's, that's um, I mean, that right there, like you nailed it. That is, that's been the biggest takeaway is that, um, there, there is not this idealistic future somewhere down the line where we're going to find happiness. You know, where happiness exists there, and we're we're going to be happy. You know, that we're going to get there, and everything's going to be right, and we're going to have this sense of just contentment and rest and ease. It's like that doesn't exist. It's right. It's right now. It's 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 all happening this very moment. It's the choice that you yeah. make about how to experience your yeah. life moment to moment. The heaven and hell, heaven and hell are all happening all the time to all of us. The entire range of, of human emotions, experiences, all of that is happening to us all the time. And, and whether or not um, we experience that joy, that happiness is, is based on our ability to see it as it's happening rather than in, in retrospect, rather than looking back and saying, oh, okay, I was happy. I didn't realize it, but I was. Things were really good back then. Those were the good old days, you know? We, we don't ever realize that until after the fact. And our ability to, to have joy, to have happiness, to be happy, um, it's is 100% based on our capacity to see it as it's happening. I mean, this right here, th th there's nothing. I remember thinking that this morning, you know, it was cold this morning, it was windy this morning. Um, there's construction going on, you know, it's loud. There's a bunch of cars um, driving way too fast, but it was also, the sun was out. I could hear the ocean. Mm. Um, I can breathe without <laughs> carrying oxygen with me. I, I can eat through my mouth. I don't, <laughs> I don't have a tube anymore yeah. in my stomach. I can take a shower by myself. I don't have to bring oxygen into there my heart rate doesn't go to 190 just because the hot water hits my body. Um, I can use the toilet by myself. I don't have to wear a diaper. I don't have bed sores right now. I don't have to <laughs> piss out of a catheter. All of those things, um, the absence of all of those things is remarkable. I mean, it's incredible. It's a miracle. And the ability to, to see that right now, um, this situation, there's nothing, there's nothing that could make it any better. I mean, I have contact with my family. I saw them just a couple of days ago. I'll see them tomorrow, you know? Um, I have my girls, I have a house, I have a car, we have climate control. We have, I mean, all of this stuff. Like there's nothing that can make it any better, nothing. I mean, really, I, yeah. I, I sincerely believe that. Like That's there's beautiful, there's nothing that could, that could improve yeah. this situation. But here's the thing. I feel like you're somebody who already understood that. Like you've conducted your life in accordance with those values all along. I, I suspect maybe you're in a you're in a you know graduate degree program with that, but you're it's not like you were living your life antithetically to those principles prior to your illness. Like you seem like a guy who understood that before. Maybe, I mean, maybe in theory, you know, I mean, but I, I don't know, I'm cynical. I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm grumpy. I'm, you know, a lot of what comes out, you know, whether I say it or whether I write it or, or, you know, however, however, however it's expressed is, is the conversation that I'm having with myself, you know, trying to help myself realign, trying to help myself focus on, on, um, 
what's good. You know, facing a challenge, being honest about what that challenge consists of, figuring out what I can control, focusing on that, and then spinning a positive narrative around mm-hmm. it. But gosh, I that's always it's always been the conversation that I that's going on in my head. You know, that that inner dialogue, I guess. Um, to try to to try to face whatever it is that I'm going through, um, I guess in an optimistic sense, but um, but that doesn't mean it's ever been um, easy. You know, it's mm-hmm. um, gosh, I don't know. I mean, there's and this whole situation. This has been. <laughs> The things that have been the most challenging are, are things that you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily think about, you know. Um, I wouldn't have thought about. I like what? Um, uh, waking up addicted to pain meds. Mm-hmm. I mean, gosh, that um, that's been. What did they have you on? Just every, like a battery of opioids, yeah. morphine. Yeah. yeah, fentanyl, morphine, um, and that stuff is lovely mm. you know i mean i don't think i've ever grieved the loss of something as much as as that yeah that's um, heavy yeah it becomes um everything you know it it that's how you get through that's how you get through those those experiences sure. you know it's like how do people endure that it's like well you endure it because you're you have a drip Medicated, of morphine yeah. right into your. And that stuff's um, fifty times more potent than heroin, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, coming off of that, um, that in combination with, you know, you're on everything, and you're on it because because you need to be on it. I mean, I don't know, I don't know how you could, how you could endure what you go through mm-hmm. if you weren't heavily medicated. But then when the time comes to a lot of the time, it seems as though you're medicated because they don't actually think you're going to make it through. So it's like, okay, let's make this as comfortable as possible. This is pain management. As you, yeah, yeah, as you transition out, and then, um, well, then you don't die, and then it's like, oh damn, okay, we've got to figure out how to get your body to where it can function without all of this. Yeah, and um, and that was hard. I mean, that yeah. that was. That's still hard. I mean, that still is, um, I mean, to say that, I don't think that pull ever goes away. Um, and you just have to jump it from that to something else, you know? And it's, it'll slowly, slowly fade into the background, but yeah, yeah it never quite goes away. Yeah. It's always lurking in the background. Yeah. Man. <laughs> well, and it's, it's been something that, um, it's not new to me. I mean, uh-huh. it's, it's always, I think addiction is so ubiquitous that I have a hard time even referring to people as addicts. I think that people are humans and that we're driven by <laughs> these gods and their dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin. And there's lots of different things that we do um, to be able to have the right combination of those. Um, and some of them are culturally and socially acceptable and some yeah. aren't, and some are more 
you know, potentially self-destructive than others. And we all on some level find our way to the drug yeah. that works for us. And yeah. that could be shopping or television, or it can be, you know, a morphine drip, whatever right. it is yeah. and every combination in between. Yeah. But I think we all gravitate to that thing that kind of solves that problem in our brain that we feel like we're missing. Right, yeah. And the interesting thing, like for me, as I've, as I've gone into, I guess just most recently with this, just experiencing it. Um, to me, it, it felt as though, you know, there's this, it felt as though it's a misconception when, when we look at people and think, why would so-and-so, you know, they have a beautiful family. They have a, <laughs> they have a great job. They have a nice house. They have a, you know, a beautiful life. Like, why would they, why would they, choose to use something like that when they know how self or how, how destructive it can be. Um, as though there's something malicious in it, you know? Right, that and, shit has nothing to do with it. Right, exactly. And, and my, my, my view of that, um, I guess most recently with this is that, that you actually, the reason that, <laughs> that somebody goes to use something like that is, is because they love their life, because they love their family, because they love the version of themselves when they're on that and they hate the version of themselves when they're not on it because their friends actually don't like the version of them when they're not on it because society doesn't respond well to that version that, um, that it actually in some situations you know, when you're completely dependent upon mm -hmm. it, it does make you a better person. It does make you more um, capable of functioning within whatever that life that you've created is. And gosh, you, you know, <laughs> people think about how expensive those types of things are, but, and how inconvenient those things are, but it's like, gosh, rehab and sobriety and, and, um, and coming off of those things, gosh, that's expensive. Yeah. And there's never a convenient time for that. No. And, you know, it, it will, it will absolutely, you know, <laughs> just, rock everything that you have going on, you yeah. know? I mean, I spent three weeks in a bed, just- Just trying to detox. Rising, you yeah. know, and just um, wow. shaking and um, felt like my brain, my spinal cord, my entire nervous system was having an allergic reaction. I mean, it's like if your brain could itch, you know, and um, just such a strong pull that you know that in a, all you have to take is one of these little beautiful little white pills mm -hmm. and within 10 minutes it's gone. Yeah. You can end it, you can stop it. You will go to the ends of the earth right? to solve yeah. that equation. Yeah, yeah. It's just- It's heavy, man. Yeah, no, it, it, but it's good though. I mean, it's good to, to experience that and to know, I guess to just, to realize that there's not a, there's just such this misconception that we have that that there's malicious intent, mm -hmm. you know, that it's, uh, you know, if somebody struggles with something like that, it's because they're they're deviant, you know, they're malevolent. It's because they just, um, yeah. They're on a search for wholeness right. and that comes in various forms. But when you find that drug and you latch onto it, it's really hard to let go. Yeah. And you being somebody who's already innately very compassionate and empathetic to, towards other human beings, like it's just, it just deepens that right. reservoir of empathy. Right and helps suspend judgment for those that struggle and are in pain and in that vicious cycle. There you go. Yeah, it's hard. 
Well, we glossed over like the diagnosis. I mean, you oh man, you have this you have this rare lymphoma, but the actual diagnosis is primary pulmonary NK T cell. Yeah. Right, and this is like a crazy rare thing. Like it's surprising that they even were able to diagnose you because so few people. How many? How many cases are there? There's almost no cases. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. That, you that's, stay out of that part. That's of the it. part that gets a little <laughs> bit tricky. I yeah. start. To, I start to. You know, I start to hear. You well, know, I start to read about it or research or I, I hear kind of overhear stuff, and it um, it doesn't bolster my confidence, so I stay away from mm. it. You know. Um, yeah. So in the hospital, five months? Oh boy. Um, Don't even know. July, July through January. Um, July, February, March, wait, July, August, September, October, seven months. Yeah, yeah, seven months or so. Steph wrote, she kind of went through the litany of all the procedures that you endured. Yeah. Are you aware of these? Because I, I was thinking about recounting some of them, but if you're, if you no, don't want to okay. yeah. be. Um, yeah, I mean, I, on a surface level. Um, you're, you're, you're aware. Yeah. You know what they did yeah. to you. Yeah, I mean, I think they so. they plucked and prodded at you. I mean, yeah. basically we don't have to put too, too fine a point on this, but multiple surgeries, most of them while sedated ventilary uh, intubation, which we mentioned, open yeah. lung biopsy, ECMO placement in both your jugular and femoral vein, tracheotomy, PEG GI feeding, uh, two chest tubes for collapsed lungs and internal bleeds. Uh, you suffered acute liver failure. You had deep vein thrombosis in your arm. You had a stage three sacral pressure ulcer and two different strains of fungal lung infections, as well as a septic blood infection. You suffered from severe ICU and steroid induced delirium. Many days you were unable to recognize Steph or even remember your own name. You lost 70 pounds of muscle going from 170 down to 98, 95 pounds, something like that. Um, you had to relearn how to talk, how to swallow, how to chew. You strained but succeeded to speak on a passy Muir valve, which I don't know what that is. Yeah. While still on ECMO and a ventilator, you had to relearn how to move your limbs, beginning with your finger and your toes. This took weeks. I mean, this is insane. It goes on and on and on. Yeah. That's like, a lot. do you have memory of these phases and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> The surgeries, all the procedures, I have I've got big scars now. And, um, you know, I've learned about a lot of this just from a lot of it happened when I was, I guess, in a coma. And so I, um, I woke up with, with all these incisions or, or just with tubes still, you know, connected. And, um, and some of it, the crazy part is that uh, <laughs> some of these procedures I was, I was sedated for, but I remember them as they were happening, you know, and I remember, oh, I've got this, well, I've got this scar here. Right, like, wow, um, right on your sternum. Yeah, right on my sternum where, um, yeah, I forget this is audio. Um, so it's big scar, too. yeah, big scar, right, right where my sternum was. And that was, um, was a pericardial window um, where they, 
I guess it was a way to go in and access um, my heart for some different procedures I had and then to, to do some work on, it's called your pericardium, which is this- mm-hmm. They had membrane. to drain fluid out yeah, of exactly, that sac, yeah. right? Yeah, to drain the fluid out of that. And and then that that basically was just kept open because so that they could go in and keep working there. And, and then eventually there's, you can't stitch it because there's just too big of a hole. And so that was cauterized. And I remember that, I remember smelling it. And, and they have to do a skin graft on that, or how do they even no, get it to just, cover up? Just burnt, just cauterized, just. Um, and I remember, I remember smelling it, and it reminded me of um, like branding cattle when I was younger. And I was like, why does it smell like we're branding cattle? And and then I realized that the smell was was coming from you. from me, you know, from my chest, and and feeling it. And um, I remember thinking. Guys, I can I can feel this, you know, this thing that we're doing. Like I'm, I'm still here, and um, but not being able to communicate. Like, okay, we gotta. Can you get me something, you know, or can you put me out? Because I I may not be responsive, but I'm still here, you know. And um, I was uncomfortable. I mean that. Um, and then that's the other thing that with um, you know, where everything is just so confusing, but that I was still experiencing lots of stuff. I mean, some of it was just, just horrible, you know, and just um, the most uncomfortable things you can imagine. And, you know, I, I've heard people say like, these things that you go through when you're, you know, in the ICU, um, end of life, stuff like that, that they're these dehumanizing experiences, you know, um, <laughs> having, um, you know, a catheter, a rectal catheter. I mean, being fed through a tube, mm-hmm. um, having a, um, a tube down your throat, a tube in your throat, you know, through your nose, through your neck, you know, all of these things. And I, um, it's it's interesting that it, it actually, there's nothing more humanizing, you know, those are humanizing, the very most humanizing experiences. Because it connects you with, just the frailty of being human yeah. and the temporal nature of our short existence here exactly. on earth. Exactly, and, yeah. and everybody will be, well, hopefully not, but but um, you know, if we live to an advanced age, and if we don't go out with a bang, you know, if we go out with a whimper instead, right. it, it looks like that, you know, yeah. and everybody will be in that situation, and um, you know, realizing that. You know, maybe somebody says something and it comes across really gruff, and it's not because they don't mean to say it in a kind way. It's because they know they've only got enough energy for three or four words, and um, they're only going to have the energy to get it out one time. You know, and you know, I remember working with um, with patients, geriatric patients, that um, you know, I remember thinking like, "Wow, that's really interesting." How 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 curt you become as you get older, and mm-hmm. and then realizing self preservation, right? Exactly, yeah. and and it's not based off of you don't have the luxury of considering how something is going to come out or how it's going to be interpreted because you just you only have the energy to just say something one time, and it's just man, this yeah, just being able to be aware of that and see that right. and experience it. And, yeah, I mean the be, the the kind of silver lining in this is you had that palliative care experience without yeah. being a geriatric and sure. you have this second shot to yeah. you know basically ply what you learned and yeah 
you know, attempt to make your life more meaningful in the process. I mean, anybody, the people who work in palliative care, I mean, it's fascinating. They come, you know, they have, they're, they're getting a firsthand experience with people at the end of their lives and their last words and their reflections on their lives. And I find that to be, you know, so powerful and yeah. instructive. Yeah. And yet you hear it and then you forget it immediately <laughs> yeah, and you just sure. go about your business. Right, and, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But man, one thing I gotta say though is, um, Oh man, nurses and the doctors, the physicians, um, man, they're, <laughs> I think about this, this situation and, and, um, and I guess some of the feedback I've gotten and some of the messages I've received and stuff. And um, this, is, I don't know, this is not a story of um, heroic feats, you know? I mean, at least, not by me. I, and when I think about it, it's like the nurses and the, um, the physicians that, that chose to, um, to take me, you know, when, when everything looked so bleak, mm -hmm. um, I mean, really putting their reputations on the line to be able to do this and to be able to be willing to take me when there was such a limit, um, like limited resources, limited bed space, limited manpower, all, yeah. all of that. Um, it just, <laughs> it's difficult to find the, the right words to express that kind of gratitude. Um, and not just to the, um, you know, the team that, that accepted me and was willing to work with me, but also with um, just the, the outpouring of support, you know, and love from, um, gosh, we're so many people. Um, oh, I mean, I don't even, I don't know what your awareness is because you know you were where you were, but the outpouring of love and the support online and the community that that kind of you know congealed around supporting you yeah. was unbelievable, man. It was yeah. it was really a beautiful thing, and I'm sure you know that. But if you don't know that, you need to know that. Right. Like. Yeah. People love you, man. And that's a reflection of the way that you've lived your life, you know, and to the extent that, you know, your experience has created a referendum on how you, how you wanna live and how you wanna be and improvements you can make, you need to understand that you have lived your life in such a way that, you know, people are, you know, going to the ends of the earth to try to find ways to, to support you and your family. Yeah, it's... <laughs> Man, people are good. It's um, all we hear is the negative. Mm. All we see is <laughs> the scandals. You know, the the times that people mess up, and the um, just this obsession we have with finding fault, um, and that it it fosters this this mindset as though humans are just <laughs> these fallible, wretched, cynical creatures, and and that's one that's one aspect of humanity, but our ability to to do good um, to impact the lives of people around us to to help make things better um, for other people around us it's it's just it's infinite that capacity mm -hmm. that ability I, I think about um, think about humanity we talk about humanity all the time um, well we did growing up at least in my home I my uh, my mom was an artist. My dad um, 
his graduate degrees were in humanities and religion. And um, that's that's fascinating. I didn't know that, but I'm like, of course. <laughs> and we, <laughs> but growing up, you know, we studied the masters, you know, uh-huh. of the humanities. They were the artists. They were the writers. The um, and that word became synonymous with like masters of the arts. Um, they were great writers or painters or sculptors. Um, and we think about Michelangelo or Bernini, or we think about um, these individuals that had this ability to capture human emotion, human experience. And that that's why, that's why we call it the humanities, not because, um, you know, it's, it's not synonymous with artists. It's that they have the ability to capture the essence of humanity, you know, not just, not just have the ability to paint or just to be a, or to be a sculptor, but to actually capture a feeling, this, this universal human experience. And there's this massive, I think about this massive spectrum of, of humanity. And on one end is the, is the weak, miserable, wretched aspects of humanity. But then on the other aspect, or on the other side of that spectrum, is is our potential for good, you know? And we are we are masters at picking up the broken pieces and um, recreating and repairing, and um, we're masters of redemption. I mean, we really are, and we're also masters at deflecting the fact that we have that capacity. Mm. We put it on something else or someone else always. Mm. We look at these incredible achievements that um, humans have accomplished and <laughs> our first reaction is, oh, it must be it must be extraterrestrials. It must be something else, you know, that <laughs> right. did this. We couldn't have possibly achieved this. <laughs> exactly, yeah. because, because if we recognize our capacity as human beings, then we also, well, if we recognize the achievements of, of a previous civilization or, or, or somebody else, and if we don't attribute it to, oh, divine intervention or, um, <laughs> or some unseen force that actually accomplished it, then it condemns us as human beings. Then we have yeah. to acknowledge the fact that, well, we maybe aren't reaching our potential as human beings. Um, and so we're so quick to give something else the credit, mm-hmm. which is great. I mean, there's, there's obviously it's important to have humility and to, to right, recognize but to, that. But to face that is to reckon with our innate power. And right. if we're living our life frivolously, we don't yeah. wanna look at that. Exactly, yeah. But when we realize, you know, <laughs> our life is ours, to choose essentially. I mean, we, we, if there's something that we want to work to accomplish, it, there's, there's work involved. There's personal responsibility that we have to take and we have to actually do that, but, but it is within our capacity. It is, it is within mm. our ability. And um, gosh, to, to be able to, to see that potential that we have as human beings um, and to realize that that, redemptive capacity that exists within each of us um, is a human characteristic, you know, to realize that not just the flawed, broken aspects of our humanity, but, but our potential. Um, 
and what we what we can what we can do individually, but also what we can do collectively. And and seeing that play out with with this experience, the the support that my family received from <laughs> continues to receive from so many. I mean, I I can't even begin to number them just because it's just it's just immeasurable. And yeah. and the 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 contributions, the generosity, the support, the encouragement, all of that, um, seeing that and just, just realizing, remembering, um, as I see that, just the incredible capacity that we have for good. Um, yeah, it, it, it reaffirms my optimism about humanity, yeah. you know, amidst all the, the chaos and the strife and the division and this breakdown in our ability to communicate and, the lack of nuance in our discourse and our, you know, quick to quick to judge, you know, kind of disposition and canceling people for this and that. Right. Like this idea of redemption, yeah. right, is so important. And this appreciation of nuance and this, you know, default to trying to find or trying to identify the best in people or, you know, see the potential in yeah. our individual and collective humanity is something that I feel like we need to reconnect with and appreciate. Yeah. I feel like it's evaporating, you know, right. right before our very eyes and we're all suffering as a result. Yeah. Yeah, it's um it's so just everybody. I mean, there's not a there's not that that's what that's what makes us human is the fact that that all of us have these secret boxes that are full of <laughs> our fears, um our grief, our insecurities um, as well as our hopes and dreams and aspirations. And sure, and then, and then sort of sitting right next to that is a culture that's, that's biding its time, just waiting to judge you yeah. in accordance with your worst day. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we just... Um, but this idea of... Um, I love this idea of you know artists as doctors of humanity, right? Here to kind of help us connect with what we all share. Yeah. And I feel like you channel that sensibility in in your writing. Like when you make these beautiful Instagram posts, they're really, they're really, you know, they're poems. They're musings philosophical on sure. the human condition. They're not about you. They're not even really about running. They're really about life and they're very broad and sometimes they're very specific, but they always speak to something that we can all connect with and share about what it is to, you know, be in this meat suit and deal with the bullshit that we have to deal with as human beings. Yeah. I mean they're they're beautiful. I love, you know, reading your writing. And Steph Thanks, too, man. like the two of you together. Yeah. It's like yeah, it's just, write a book together. It's incredible. Yeah. Um thank you. That means a lot. I it's always just been my journal, really. And uh -huh. and I, from the time I was a kid, um, you know, we were encouraged to write every day. And um, my dad has had a journal that he writes in and has kept since the 1970s. And it's like 17,000 pages long. And, wow. um, you know, he writes it every month and then prints it out and sends it to each of us, you know? And... Uh, so, and it's, it's basically that, you know, it's just his mm -hmm. thoughts and the things that he reads and the things that he experiences. And, and so we've, you know, we were always taught to 
to do that, that that was something that you should do on a daily basis is sit down and write. And my, you know, my little daughter, right? My, my oldest of the three, um, you know, she's old enough to where she can do something like that. She can sit down and write. And, and that's something that I've, <laughs> their allowance is based mm-hmm. off of. It's like, well, if you write every day, you know, at the end of the month, you can add all this up. Oh, and, that's cool. And, and um, just because it's a, it's a way to express, um, to identify what it is that you're feeling and to be able to put it down on paper and it, it validates that experience for you, you know? And if there's other people that, you know, that mm-hmm. feel like it can be helpful to them as well, then it's, and you can do it in a way that's generic enough to where, yeah. um, and that's what that's always been. You know, I, even before social media, that's always just been something that I've done. And it's something I still do. I mean, I don't share a lot of it, but um, but getting in the practice of of writing, um, I think that there's this this quote by Hemingway where he talks about writing um, one true thing. You know, he sits down and he's just right, just write one true sentence, right? The truest sentence that you know, and and that's what it is a lot of days, you know. And and it's not it's not always this yearning where I have to sit down and write something. Otherwise, you know, I'm not going to be able mm-hmm. to contain my thoughts. It's, it's a practice, you know, I sit down and I, I make myself write one true thing. And, um, and sometimes I share that and sometimes I don't, most mm-hmm. of the times I don't. Um, but it's really helped me in the last, um, in the last several months as I've been trying to get, you know, there are aspects of my memory that I don't think I'll ever get back, but, but I feel like I'm finally being able to get my mind back, you know, mm-hmm. um, have the ability to think and be able to, um, I guess process kind of just what's going on around me yeah. and, um, and internalize that and then be able to metabolize it, you know, through, <laughs> through putting it down on paper. And yeah, it has a very, uh, like beat poet vibe to it. Right. And it's, it's cool. Cause I think, you know, we think of athletes being here and then artists being over here. Yeah. And it's rare when these two things come in one package. And you see it kind of probably more in the ultra space because sure. that's sort of a more kind of esoteric pursuit. And I think is prone to, you know, kind of, you know, waxing poetic, sure. I suppose. Um, but I love it when athletes are kind of channeling that innate artistic sensibility that I think we all have. When I think of you, I mean, I think about Ricky Gates, you know, being somebody like that. Like, um, I'm, I don't know, do you guys know each other? I you don't I know should, right? Him, yeah. Like, I mean, you guys I, I d- like I have a know. Vulcan mind meld. I definitely know <laughs> yeah. who he is, but yeah, um, no, he's, he's uh, really inspiring. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's like notes from the edge, yeah. you know, like we're out here, we're explorers of a certain kind yeah. and we're reporting back with, you know, uh, what we discover out there, and yeah. I think it's I think it's really cool. Um, the other piece to this is this this default to being service minded, and I was reading or listening to something your brother Jacob said, and he was talking about when you guys were in college in in Hawaii, and and really you know immersing yourself in the in the indigenous Hawaiian culture and trying to understand the precepts and principles that kind of underpin their philosophy. Yeah. You know, the idea of, of ohana and aloha and mana and all of that, but a core principle being this idea of ha, like this, yeah. this um, predisposition towards giving and the idea that when you are in a giving 
spirit that it is there that you find your your greatest power. Yeah. So talk about that a little bit. Oh gosh. Um, yeah, we were out there for we were out there together for a few years, and that was that was an awesome time um, on Oahu. And um, we had a professor that was the Hawaiian studies professor. We, we both studied. Um, Oh, part of what we both studied was cultural anthropology. Um, was part of, I think that's what he ended up studying. And then, yeah, so we had some classes that we were together mm-hmm. in. Um, yeah, there was definitely, a, there were components of, of that belief system that just really made a lot of sense. And, and I think some of it had to do with our, our upbringing, but this notion that... <laughs> one of the strong ones was this relationship that we have with, with the natural world, with the earth, you know, and there's a belief within um, traditional Hawaiian belief that if you are a steward of the land, if you protect the earth and you, you care for the earth, that, that the earth has a moral obligation to care for you in return. And, um, you know, I, I wish I understood it better. Um, but I feel there is a definitely is a connection, you know, and there's a there's a sense of um, there's some type of reciprocal reciprocal relationship that exists where um, not just in that well that that respiratory relationship that we have with the earth. I mean that that's that's incredible to think about that 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 we that we consume carbohydrates and we breathe in oxygen and we drink water and that the combination of those three things creates CO2 and energy. And then we breathe out that CO2 and the plants breathe in the that CO2, CO2 right? and they create carbohydrates and oxygen and breathe that back out. And I feel as though there's a, there's something else that exists that, that are somehow our connection with the natural world and moving through the natural world, whether it's walking or running um, or cycling or swimming or surfing, whatever it is, that the emotions that we store, absorb, you know, from, I've always <laughs> absorbed people's emotions around me. Um, and that gets heavy, that gets really heavy. Um, and running is has become, it was always a, an outlet. It was always a way to metabolize that emotion mm. and somehow, um, breathe it back into the natural world. And it felt as though there was something within that natural world that I wasn't, it wasn't a toxin that I was emitting. It was almost as though it was, it was something that was beneficial mm. somehow. And- um, Right, the more that you grow and mature and metabolize all of this, like whatever you're, you're aspirating out- Yeah, exactly. Is providing sustenance to For something. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reason that I, I feel that is because I can go out and I can spin my wheels and go through the motions in a densely populated city. And I don't feel that release. I don't feel Mm -hmm. as though it's metabolizing the same way as if I was in, um, you know, in the mountains or in the canyon or, um, you know, um, or, you know, these hills around here. I mean, that's what I love about, what I love about here is that you can be in such a densely populated area and then you just move, Right, you know, just right next door is this rugged, wild mountain, and you have the ability to. 
exhale all of that, you know, that you've absorbed. Um, anyway, it, it, it goes back to, to the, I guess the things that we learned there when we were, when we were in school there and just the, this understanding that, that there is a connection, that there's a reciprocal connection, not just between us and the natural world, but between, mm-hmm. you know, ourselves and other human beings. And, um, I feel like that's heightened in Hawaii. Yeah, like there is for sure. a real like palpable sense. It's very experiential when yeah, you're there because sure. there's a lot of light, but there's a lot of dark there. Like there's yeah. a polarity Absolutely. that exists for some reason. Yeah. Maybe it's on some meridian. I don't know what's going on there, yeah. but I mean, it's real as far as yeah, I can tell. Absolutely. But the trick is then to come back to the mainland where it's less pronounced and maintain that kind of reverence and respect right. and, and you know awareness. Yeah, yeah, and the, the one thing that I, well, not the one thing, but one thing that I do love about being out there is, um, is that the currency out there is, <laughs> is service to the people around. Right, I mean, you know? that's what and, I was driving at with this yeah. idea of ha. Right, exactly, yeah, it, I think about the word Inspire, you know. Inspire means to to breathe life into something. Um, the same as that notion of ha. Um, conspire to breathe life into something together with somebody else, you know. Um, and just that sense that um, that you have the ability as a human being to positively or negatively affect the people around you based off of the way that you choose to interact, you know? And um, you know, our purpose, <laughs> if there's a purpose, our purpose for being here is to serve, is to serve each other, is to, is to try to make the life of another individual easier, you know, to try to help them on their way, to try to somehow be of assistance. And there's this notion, this need for cooperation, coordination, um, that that we have as human beings that's existed for hundreds of thousands of years but in the last gosh i don't know the last couple of centuries um we've become more um individualistic we've Mm -hmm. we've become more isolated you know rather than um working together with individuals cooperating um in a tribe setting um there's something we, uniquely American about that because yeah. of the way we over-prioritize and over-index and kind of um, herald the idea of rugged individualism, yeah. which is really an illusion. Like yeah. nobody gets anywhere without cooperation right. and help. But sure. for some reason, we celebrate this idea of the self-made man yeah. and these sort of principles upon which our country was built. Yeah really look to that idea of individualism yeah. as something um, that stands above all these other, you know, kind of ideas that I think we should be celebrating probably a little bit more. Yeah. And as a result, we're, we're isolating ourselves from each other yeah. and we're not raising our children in a village and we don't know our neighbors and we consider it a weakness to ask for help. And all of these things I think are, are really denigrating the quality of our lives. Yeah, absolutely. And and we, rather than focusing on coordination and cooperation and and receiving the the reward that comes from that, which is this 
production and distribution of oxytocin. We yeah. we use our um, consumption and accumulation, you know, to to feed that same need, and right. we isolate ourselves. And we get our validation through our devices, right? And, or we only we only conspire and cooperate in order to cons- get to a place where we can consume more, right? And and separate ourselves from our brothers and sisters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I was I I I'm, I'm sure you had this same experience, but I mean, we originally met because we were both with um, James, Aaron Cowboy on the final day of his 50-50-50 and we got to run a few miles together and that was super fun. And you know, one of the things I remember about that experience was you being not just a cheerleader, but a guy who was, you were there to serve, like you're running back and forth, you're making sure everybody's okay, you're making sure James is okay. And, you know, I, I mean, I was very aware of kind of, I was very conscious of like, the intentionality that you brought to that experience in that it was all about like making sure it was the best day ever for James, right? Yeah. And it was, and it was amazing. And I'll never forget that day. Um, I went back to on two occasions to, you know, participate in his latest crazy adventure, the the Conquer 101, that's what he's called, that's what he called it, right? And, And one of the things, I mean, set aside the, you know, the sheer athletic achievement, the thing that was most meaningful to me was seeing this whole town yeah. turn up to support this guy, like a small little town, not really a suburb, like it's far enough away from Salt Lake that it's kind of its own place yeah. with its own community. And everybody showed up to support this guy. And all these people flew in from all over the place to support this guy. Yeah. And it was the most kind of cooperative situation and in some ways kind of a throwback to a different time because it's a place where yeah. kids ride their bikes down the street yeah. and everybody says hello to each other. You know, it's a, it's a very leave it to beaver kind right. of town, totally. right? Yeah, absolutely. And I was like, wow, this is kind of nice. You know, yeah. like I don't see, I live in LA, I don't see this right. anywhere, right? Yeah. yeah. But it is that spirit of, of cooperation and a sensibility around kind of giving of yourself for something greater than yourself. Yeah. It's been a and I know you were out there, you went out there for, I think I went out there on the last day and James was telling me that you had been out there, I think a couple of days prior. Yeah, I got there in um, oh, New Jersey. So I think the second the second half, maybe last like 25 or right, so. Oh, on the them. 50, yeah. I mean, yeah. you were there for a huge oh, right. long stretch, but I mean, the, re- the, yeah. the latest yeah. thing you were out, you, you came out for a day. Yeah, yeah. yeah if I was um, with my, my dad and my sister and we went, went out to see him and, um, Gosh, that's incredible. I mean, I just not even words. It's, I mean, what do you even say about <laughs> yeah, it? Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, and James is, gosh, his ability to, um, you know, just exactly what I, we were talking about earlier, the potential that we have as human beings, you know, to explore mm-hmm. those outer ragged edges of that human capability and to do it in a way that, um, just empowers other people to to realize what it is that we're actually capable of, you know, to re to rewrite those rules and and the way that he is able to do it is is through that, you know, cooperation, coordination. Um to see how I mean it, it is a equal distribution of effort by by him and Sonny and his sure. kids and the wingman. And he's the first person <clears throat> to 
make sure that everybody understands yeah. that this is a team thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it's it's really. I mean, the wingmen are unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, they are. Um, gosh, yeah, that's a good crew. I mean, that's a that's a solid group of people, and you can't help but you know walk away from that and be just inspired by you know what I mean that mm-hmm. in that same way that I mentioned that like it breathes life in you it helps you realize what you're capable of as a human and not just not just what James has done but just like the way that we can rally around any cause whatever it is right. and um and even you know not just the outward things that are said but just observing it just watching it just seeing how it plays out and and doing it so transparently and openly like that to where everybody sees you know this is there's no curtain that separates behind the scenes and mm-hmm. the, the front stage. Everybody is just right out there, and um, and you see all of it, and you you realize how how much it takes to be able to pull something like that off, and um, and that makes it even more inspiring. You know, yeah. just that 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 you can you can create something like that, a community, you know, a tribe, a family, whatever it is, and um, you know, you have a goal, and then you figure out a plan, and then you just chip away at it until you until you get it done. I know. It's pretty incredible. In your case, I mean so much of your of who you are, so much of your identity is that of the athlete, right? And now obviously you have to recalibrate that sure. whole thing. Like how has that been for you and how do you think about that? Oh man. Um you know it it doesn't it doesn't in my head it doesn't change. I I've never been um you know, I, I had an opportunity, I've had the opportunity to be around a lot of really, really great athletes um, living in Flagstaff and, um, you know, working in, um, you know, being a body mechanic, basically, you know, working on bodies, um, studying physical therapy, studying massage, studying um, manual therapy. You have the opportunity to to be around and put your hands on lots of really incredible, incredible athletes. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's really good because it helps you realize how unremarkable you are, you know? And you uh, you go to Flagstaff, you, you learn really quick that you're you're a, a tiny fish in, a, in an enormous <laughs> pond, you oh, know? There's Ryan Hall, <laughs> exactly. there's Sarah Hall, right. there's Scott Fall. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, there are, um, even on the, you know, the, the buildups where I was in the very best shape of my life, there are, I don't know, three dozen males and females that could, you know, kick my ass on any distance and, mm-hmm. you know, any, any, uh, any event. Um, and I, you know, I, I was never going to be the greatest. I was never going to be a great, great athlete. You know, I mean, I, I like to do everything that I could to wring out my own potential. Um, but I, you know, I was very, very aware that I was never going to be not built to be a, a distance runner, you know? Sure, but and, at the same time, there's that, there's the kind of performance outcomes of, yeah. of being an athlete, but more importantly or more meaningfully is just the experience of being right. an athlete. Like exactly. I get to go out and run these trails and I can I can feel a certain way and run these distances and connect with my breath and exactly. you know, yeah. all of that 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 gives us sustenance, right? right? Is yeah. suddenly not available to you. Well, it, I guess what I was what I was getting at is that it it is still, it's just different. It's Mm. just, um, the thing that drew me to it was always, you know, being able to be a part of that community, being able to, 
um, feel a part of, you know, there's this cohesion that takes place uh, when you're out suffering alongside people and training towards something and working collectively towards something. And, um, you know, my body is, is wrecked. It, it likely, it likely won't ever, um, be able to recover fully. Um, but I can still get out. I can still, yeah, I, was I can ask still you, move, like, what you know? can you do? Like, yeah. what, what does it look like? Well, it's a lot of walking right now. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in Flagstaff at that elevation, uh, and I'll get out and just slowly move. And and just that process of moving through the natural world, um, it still provides the same. I, I have never loved the, <laughs> I mean, it's fun to compete, but but I really have always done it as a way of, of just being able to work through my own issues. You know, it's this meditative reverent practice of, of going out and I guess seeking <laughs> this transcendental experience, you know, and, um, and you become so dependent upon it. You have to make a lifestyle out of it eventually. Otherwise it gets flagged as, you know, something that's, that's, yeah, that's an addiction, right? you know, it's self-destructive yeah. and, um, just shroud all of this and no, really. tell everybody it's a career. If you can yeah. do that, I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, that's, but that's what it is. I mean, that, that really uh-huh. is. And, um, and otherwise it becomes, you know, something that people say you should, you know, you should probably reconsider. I remember talking to my dad a couple of years ago. My dad's like my best friend. Like we talk on the phone, like almost every day. And he, uh, we were in, I was out on the same road, same road that I run back and forth day after day after day. And I think it was like the third run of the day, just because I'd had to break it up and, and I was getting ready for a marathon. And, and I'd been living in Flagstaff for, I don't know, maybe six years. And you know, pursuing that full time. And he said, wow, you're running again? You're, you're really into this running thing, aren't you? And I was like, <laughs> yes, dad, yep. You know, I, it's something that I am pursuing a little bit, you know, seriously. And I was like, dad, that'd be like if I said to you, like, oh, you're still reading books. Huh? You're really into that mm. reading thing, aren't you? And yeah, <clears throat> anyway. still writing in your journal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, it, it it's changed. I mean, it's different. It's slower, but gosh, if, if we got to the end of this life and if there was some kind of sit down judgment, reconciliation, and, and the only thing that you had to show for it was how fast you could run. I mm-hmm. mean, what a, what a waste of a life that would be, you know? I mean, really, <laughs> yeah. like, it's like, it's like, well, what did you do? It's like, well, did you see how fast I could run? Did you see how fast I could run a marathon? Yeah. I mean, that is a pretty pathetic existence, <laughs> you know? I mean, there's yes. so much that is the, nothing more self-serving than that, you know? Uh-huh. And, and so, yeah, I, I'm not, I don't know. Who knows? I don't know if I'll ever run that fast again, but. Um, I mean, you were out, you've shared on Instagram, you were out in the canyon with your, with your daughter. Yeah. So you're getting out there. Yeah. So I walk, I get out, yeah, I get out and move and, um, and that's as good as it gets, you know, being able to be in the canyon with um, Harper, she's 11. I mean, she's incredible. I mean, we have like, she says things that, um, the way that she's connected to the, <laughs> the natural world is, uh, it's unlike anything I've ever experienced before. Mm. We, we were walking and she said, um, <laughs> she said, you know, dad, it, it sounds like the way that, you know, when you lick a rock <laughs> and I said, what? 
She goes, it's the sound of like licking a rock, but not like a river rock and not a piece of limestone, like a piece of sandstone. Like, you know that sound that it makes when you lick a piece of sandstone? And I was like, I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, that kind of... Um, There's the poet. <laughs> exactly. That's amazing. No, I was just like, wow, that's so, that is so... Um, it's so in tune, you know. Right. And having experiences like that with her, you know, and we're walking. She like shame. Somebody had like a a boombox or something like that down <laughs> yeah. in the canyon, and she was yeah. like, just a, not a Bluetooth into it. speaker. Yeah. yeah. She just <laughs> shook her head, and she just she goes oh, noise pollution. And I was like, yeah, and it wasn't even to me; it was just to herself. And I just heard it, and I was like, man, that's awesome. <laughs> I mean, that's a really proud moment. And then she said something to me, and it reminded me of something that maybe I had said to her at one point, but she she said it back to me as though it was an independent thought. You know, I could tell it was like something mm -hmm. that was a part of her, but you know, we were having a, I was having a hard time coming back out, you know, we're hiking back out and gosh, I swear the Canyon got way steeper you know, in right. the last year and a half, but I'm coming back out and she's like, Hey, you know what? It's okay. Like, it's okay. Sometimes, sometimes the memory is a lot better than when we're actually living the experience. And I was like, gosh, this kid, you know, and uh, children I mean, are our teachers. Nothing Tommy. better than that, you know. That's unbelievable. I mean, it's just wow. like to be able to have that experience, and you know, the fact that I can do that now, be able to walk down there with her, and um, you know, be able to walk on the trails just around her home and sit outside and play with the ducks and the chickens, and you know, just all of that. It's like there's nothing, um, there's nothing better than that, and yeah. and I have that now. You know, I remember a year ago, a year and a half ago bartering with whoever it is that <laughs> that's in charge of all of this. You know, if I can just, just let me get through this year, just give me one more year. Like if I can have a year, then, you know, I'll gladly go. Mm -hmm. And I've made it, it's been a year. Yeah. And um, gosh, and then you get selfish. You're like, okay, five more, 20 more, 50 more, right. <laughs> you know? Cause we're humans, but, man. Yeah, right? exactly. But I mean, it, it doesn't, doesn't get any better than this. It's it really doesn't. And I mean, the tragedy is that we that we don't see it until afterwards. You know, I I mean, I've been thinking about um, people say like, and they lived <laughs> and they lived happily ever after. Like the the operative verb there is lived. You know, they were they were alive, and that's why that's why they were able to. That's why it was happily ever after. Then they died. And it becomes a fucking tragedy, you know? But like, gosh, life is incredible. I mean, it, it just, as bad as it seems, as hard as it seems, um, it's just such a, a gift to be able to do it. And we talk about how tragic it is when somebody, when something happens, you know, somebody dies, somebody gets sick, um, there's an accident, there's a disaster. And as though, um, as though that's um, that's out of the norm, and and in reality, the fact that we're alive, it's just it's just a miracle. I mean, the fact that we're that we're here, that we're <laughs> it becomes hard to talk about this stuff because you can't express it in ways that haven't been expressed in just such cliche terms, yeah. you know. But the fact that we're living and breathing and talking and all of this um, with everything that's going on. On a space rock, yeah, exactly. That, that emits uh, oxygen that we can breathe, exactly. and we give it back CO two as yeah. we're hurtling through space. I mean, it's all yeah. insane, it's right? Spinning sixteen, but our brains miles can't. 
you can't really, you know, grok that whole thing. Yeah. I mean, of course, obviously we intellectually understand like that life is a miracle, sure. but we can't fully embody that or appreciate that on yeah. a moment to moment basis. And, you know, in my experience, people who have experienced certain types of trauma or life altering, you know, situations like yourself, come out of those experiences with obviously this renewed appreciation, but there's kind of a timeline, like it, that dissipates over time. Sure. Like it's hard to hold on to that, yeah. right? And so here you are a year later, like I feel like you're, you really are holding on to that. You know, you really are in the moment. Like when we first sat down and you're like, this is great, man, I'm so happy. Like I can feel it, like that's yeah. real. And I think that's an incredible, gift for all of us to like hear you express that for you to fully embody that and a powerful reminder of just how precious all of this is and how fleeting and how delicate and fragile. Yeah. And I just wanna, like, I want a piece of that. Like I wanna like, I wanna, I wanna feel that on a soul level in the way that you feel it. The, the lucky part is that as good as things are, they'll get bad again for all of us, right. you know? I guess the key is to not waste that suffering. When, when it comes, like see it as a, see it as a gift, see it as an, as, as an opportunity to open our eyes and, and to be able to really, to value, you know, what it is that we have. Um, is normal, a normal day, you know, just realizing how incredible that is. And the tragedy is that we don't recognize it until after the fact, but, um, Everything is, it's so cyclical, you know, everything that is good. Um, anytime we're in, we're having a, a good time, a comfortable time, life is good, you know, um, we can be 100% guaranteed that it's gonna get bad again, yeah. you know? And as bad as it is, you can be 100% guaranteed that it's gonna get good again, you know? And it's just being able to see all of it all at once and um, and recognize, recognize what is good and, um, and be able to really value it as it's happening. Um, because, you know, like I was saying, there is, there is no idealistic future, you know, where it's just gonna, it's gonna all be right. And we're just gonna be happy, you know? It, happiness isn't something, we're not a victim of it. It doesn't just happen to us, you know? It's, it's happening all the time. And it's our ability to see it and recognize it. And um, it's just, <laughs> it's just incredible, really. I had so many other things I wanted to talk to you about, but I can't imagine a better way to end it than with that. That was so beautifully put. Thanks, Jim. Um, you're a beautiful man. Oh, jeez, uh, thanks, I, I really appreciate you coming here today. I really do. It's, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's moving for me just to be in your presence after having kind of closely followed everything that's that's occurred in your life. And I just have so much reverence and respect for for you, yes, as an athlete, but really just as a human being, like the way that you comport yourself, the way that you interact with the world, the way that you um, are as a family man, as a husband and as a father, I think it's really exemplary. And um, I just have a, a huge amount of respect for you. And I wish you well, man, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm here for you for whatever you need, man, and I'm just, Delighted that we got to spend a couple hours together. Gosh, thanks, Rich. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I did want to point out before uh, before we close this up a couple things. The first is 
you have this GoFundMe. It's still up there, right? People can still Gosh, contribute to that. You don't even I don't know. know. Yeah, no. I think you can. I mean, you guys have raised a bunch of money, but you know, oh, medical yeah. bills are expensive. So I'm going to link up that in the in the show notes for people um, who uh, who you know want to learn a little bit more about that. And also, you're you're a long time uh, ambassador of craft, right? And right. this is really cool. Like they came up with. This, I mean, they have this Team Ribs collection, right? But inspired by your experience, they've decided to provide the U.S. a discount uh, on their on their gear until the U.S. gets universal health care. You know about this, right? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're they're giving ten point seven percent off, which represents the amount Swedish citizens pay of their income to cover healthcare. Yeah. Which I thought was really cool and clever. I think that was a recent announcement, yeah, right? Yeah, just a couple of days ago. Yeah, yeah. They're, a, they're an incredible company. Um, it's been, oh, Swedes just do everything better, you know? I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's a, a Swedish company, you know, been around since, I think since the 1970s. They started with um, like creating ski, gear mm-hmm. for you know cross country skiing and then got into cycling and getting into running and um man just having the chance to work with them and and they've been you know I started to work with them and we started to you know collaborate on, on creating a shoe and creating some gear and, and it was right after I started with them that I got sick and um man I they had <laughs> as far as our contract was concerned like they had every right to terminate the contract mm-hmm. um, because I was, my job was to basically be an athlete and to collaborate on, you know, uh, research and development of these different uh, products that we were creating. And um, I wasn't able to do any of that, you know, at the time. And um, and they, you know, not just stayed with me, but like doubled down and supported um, me and my family and, have gone on to create, you know, this entire line of clothing. And um, man, they just, it just speaks (laughs) just volumes as to the kind of company that they are, you know? And um, yeah, they've been, it's been unbelievable. Yeah, that support. And, and, you know, and this is just, just, I I don't think it was necessarily in response to me, but it was just um, more in response to just the idea that, you know, they wanted to provide that to. <laughs> well, it definitely American. was in response to you. I mean, you, you catalyzed that thing. I mean, it's cool. I think that it's cool that they're doing it. Uh, also, I should point out for all you iFit people, you've got like a ton of stuff on yeah. the iFit platform, right? Oh, that like was you've another... gone all over the world, like running all over the place. So there's all kinds of content yeah. on that platform. So. Yeah, I had, a, had a, an opportunity to do that for, for a lot of years before, um, mm-hmm. before I got sick and we've got, um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there. Yeah, right. it's been a really cool experience to be able to do that. And um, yeah, and that was something that kind of, kind of took off when I was when I was asleep too. You know that um, just the support that came together from iFit and from that community has been that's been just um, just mind blowing. Honestly, yeah, um, yeah it's been really <laughs> appreciated. Yeah, cool, man. We'll uh, come back and share with me some more. <laughs> All right, you cool. do that. Yeah, cool. Absolutely. Um, everybody should definitely check out uh, Tommy on on Instagram as well at Tommy underscore Rivs. And anything else? 
before we sign off here? Oh, just man, oh, I just man. thank you to everybody for all of this. You know, I wish there was, wish I had better words and bigger words, oh, but man. you know, it just was, to express. It was beautiful, man. All love, brother. Yeah. All love. Thank you, Rich. All right. Talk again soon. Peace. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube, and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated. And sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course, awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Kale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davey Greenberg and Grayson Wilder. Graphic and social media assets, courtesy of Jessica Miranda, Daniel Solis, Dan Drake, and AJ Akpodiete. Thank you, Georgia Whaley, for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace, plants. Namaste. Yeah.